Our speaker, historian and historical archaeologist Nancy Seasholes, is the author of several previous works about our city, including Gaining Ground, A History of Land Making in Boston, and Walking Tours of Boston's Made Land. She frequently gives talks about and walking tours of Boston. She is here to discuss the Atlas of Boston History, the landmark volume that she edited over the course of more than a decade. It features contributions from dozens of experts, and reviewers have called it, quote, a visual feast and a triumph of storytelling, as well as a rich new way of looking at the city. I've been reading it, and I highly, highly recommend it to you all. Um, it's a fascinating uh, volume and a tremendous resource to all those interested in Boston history. Uh, following her lecture, I also invite you all to please join us in the print room on the second floor, where we have pulled some treasures related to Nancy's talk um, from our special collections. Without further ado, please join me in warmly welcoming Nancy Seashulls. Thanks, Jenny. It's a pleasure to be here. And I am here, as Jenny just said, as, as you know, to discuss this new book of Boston, The Atlas of Boston History. But before I tell you something about the atlas, I want to tell you something about this bird's eye view on the cover. The University of Chicago Press, which published the atlas, wanted to use a bird's eye on the cover. But I said, all color bird's eyes of Boston have already been used as book covers, and I don't think we should repeat this. Well, we were at something of an impasse, and then someone who is much better than I am at searching the online catalog of the Leventhal Map Center at the BPL found this bird's eye, which was new to me, and I hope is new to many other people too. It was published in 1866 in Germany. It's titled Anzig von Boston, View of Boston, Nachter Nachter Aufgenommen, Taken from Nature. It appeared in a German magazine called Die Gartenlaube, and had apparently been removed from that magazine and then acquired in 2004 by the Leventhal Map Center, but had not been cataloged at the time. It had lain uncatalogued for many years until recently their cataloger found it, cataloged it, and used it in a 2018 that the Leventhal Center, um, 2018 exhibit that the Leventhal Center mounted called Mapping Boston's Green Spaces. Well, it seemed to be the solution to our problem. And as you can see, the atlas cover is a detail from this bird's eye. So, having told you something about the cover, now let me tell you something about what's in the atlas. The atlas is an historical atlas of Boston. That is, it traces Boston's history through maps. 
in this case, not historical maps, but maps that were drafted for it, especially by a group of cartographers. The atlas has many authors, as Jenny just told you, 35 in fact, some of whom are at, um, Athenaeum members, uh, Bob Allison, Dick Garver, John Bell, and Jim Vrabel are the ones I know about. So we um, met as a group of historians for two and a half years to hammer out the contents of the atlas. Our object was to tell the story of Boston's development from that very small town in the 1600s to the modern city and to explain how and why it developed that way. So to do so, we organized the uh, material into 11 sections, chronological sections, and what I'm going to do is go through the atlas section by section and show you some examples from each so you get an idea of what's in the atlas. The first section is about Boston before it was founded in 1630. These are the um, titles of the different plates. And this is the very first plate in the atlas. As I'm sure you know, in an atlas, generally the maps are arranged in a double page spread called a plate. As I said, this is the first one. And it concerns the um, Boston area in the last ice age. The map shows that Boston is in a geological formation called the Boston Basin. This is a photo of the Boston Basin, actually taken, it's a little hard for me to see it here, but taken from right up here on Belmont Hill. What we wanted to do was show the Boston Basin, and then on this photo, we've superimposed what the depth of the ice in the last glacier that covered this during the last ice age would have been. It was almost a mile thick. When that glacier melted, it left layers of uh, deposit, which we show here. The map also shows that at the bottom of the Boston Basin, there are two different types of bedrock. In the northern part, a sedimentary rock called Cambridge argillite that looks like this, and in the southern part, a conglomerate that is a rock formed of smaller stones set in a matrix that's called Roxbury Conglomerate, or sometimes Roxbury Pudding Stone, because the early settlers thought that the small stones in the rocks looked like the plums in plum pudding. So uh, it turns out that there are two different types of Roxbury Pudding Stone. A, a light-colored type with small stones that's been used for the construction of many churches in Back Bay in the South End. Here you can see New Old South. And then a darker-colored type with large stones that Frederick Law Olmsted used for many of the structures in the parks that he designed. These are the stairs in Doherty Playground in Charlestown. The Next section is about Boston in the 1600s and includes this plate on the founding of Boston. The map shows the counties in England from which the earliest settlers of Boston came, and as you can see, basically from the section of England that's called East Anglia. 
Uh, the graphs show the enormous increase in population in New England and Boston and uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony during what was called the Great Migration, that is from 1630 to 1640. And this map is something of a coup. It shows the uh, boundaries of the towns in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1640 superimposed on a map showing modern uh, boundaries of cities and towns so that you can see what uh, present towns and cities were set off from these original towns. For example, let's take Cambridge. Cambridge originally included Newton, Brighton, present Cambridge, of course, but also Arlington, Belmont. And here we can see, as far as 1640, half of Lexington. In the early 1640s, actually, the boundaries of Cambridge were extended to include all of Lexington and a lot of Bedford and Billerica. Well, you can see this on many other towns if you take a look at the at the um, plate itself. Our next section is about Boston in the 1700s and includes this plate on Boston in 1743. Now I said we do not have historical maps in the atlas, but that wasn't quite right. We do have a few, including this one. Now a map like this is often hard for people to relate to present day Boston, so we provide a locator map here, and you can see where the 1743 map relates to the present map of Boston. This is one of a number of plates in the atlas about Boston in a specific year. These plates generally include a population graph showing Boston's population in relation to the other major, well, in this case, towns in the colonies, but later cities in the US. So here is Boston in black, and you can see that Boston was the most populous town in the colonies until about 1750 when it was overtaken first by Philadelphia and then by New York. Our plates about Boston in a specific year also generally include what we call an architectural sidebar. That is something about the um, dominant style of architecture at the date of the plate. So here it's Georgian architecture, and we usually illustrate it with a public building, and here it's the old state house, but if you can see this, I know its focus is not perfect. Um, this, you'll say, well, this doesn't look like the old state house today. Well, you have to remember that the old state house burned in the winter of 1747-48, and the date of this plate is 1743. So this is the way the old state house looked before the fire. It originally had a gambrel roof and no lion and unicorn. The lion and unicorn and today's gable roof were the way it was rebuilt after the fire. Then we show an upper-class house. In this case, it's the Shirley Eustis House in Roxbury, which we used because there are no upper-class Georgian houses left in what was then Boston. Um, and for a middle-class house, we used the Clough House in the North End. And if you know it, it doesn't look like this now either. Today, it's three stories with a gable roof, but originally it was two stories with a gamble roof. And then we often include a floor plan so that you can see how people lived in those houses. On the map, we try to show where people lived 
um, at the date of the plate. So here it's shown by either houses or shading along the streets. If possible, we show where the churches were. Here we've um, highlighted them in red and we've also identified their denominations. Um, public buildings are shown in yellow and they are right here in this uh, central district. Not surprising, this is what's now State Street with Long Wharf at its end. And then we show the location of industries, which here are mostly rum distilleries and rope walks and some mills along the waterfront. It so happens that there's a 1743 view of Boston too. So we numbered all the features on the view, and then we numbered the same features on the map where they're labeled so that you can compare the two. Our next section is about the history of Boston from the end of the Revolution to 1828, and it includes this plate on the economy of Boston from the end of the Revolution to the embargo of 1807. As I said, we were trying always to explain what made Boston develop the way it did, and we felt that most of this was driven by economic considerations. So there are a number of plates throughout the atlas on the economy in different periods. Here, what really was driving the economy was maritime trade, that's what we're illustrating. Uh, the map shows, among other things, the China trade, which developed during this period. Uh, the China trade, in the China trade, Boston ships took goods like um, old cloth, beads, metal tools around Cape Horn to the Pacific Northwest, where they traded them with the Native Americans there, that's what you see in the illustration, for sea otter furs. Then they took the sea otter furs to China and traded those for tea, porcelain, and silks. Now on this map, exports are shown in blue, imports in red. So at this point, they were then bringing the Chinese goods back around the Cape of Good Hope, that is circumnavigating the globe, back to Boston. This was a very lucrative trade for the merchants who participated in it, but actually the most important trade in this period was between Boston and Europe. Um, this was a period when England and France were often at war with each other, particularly beginning in the 1790s, but the U.S. was a neutral country, so the uh, U.S. ships could carry the goods from either one of those, which they did to Europe, and that was really the basis of the um, very prosperous trade. The map shows the banks and insurance companies that developed as a result of this maritime trade clustered around State Street. Here is the pop, another one of these population graphs. It didn't fit on our plate in Boston in 1800, so we put it here. Here's Boston again in black. It's now the fourth largest town in the U.S. behind New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore. Our next section we call the Athens of America. It's really about um, the importance of Boston as a cultural center in the early 1800s and includes this plate on literary Boston. Um, Boston as the hub of the universe, as it was sometimes called, and we uh, show important uh, literary sites in Boston, Concord, and Cambridge, including the Athenaeum, which you can see right there, which when you go over to the legend is number, let's see if I can find it, 
uh, 13 there, which is color-coded to show it was important as a library and as a gathering place for people. Well, we have information about all of these um, items mentioned in the le legend, but there wasn't room for them all on the plate. So we have select ones for Boston, Concord, and Cambridge showing all the sites, and then the rest of the information is at the back of the book. Our next section is about Boston in the middle of the 19th century and includes this plate on the population of Boston in 1855. The data for this came from the 1855 census of um, state census of population, and it showed that U.S. whites were still the most predominant, uh, U.S.-born whites were still the most predominant group in Boston, but foreign-born were becoming important, particularly the Irish, which are shown in green. The graph shows people's occupations. Uh, skilled workers were the largest group, but merchants and laborers were also very important. Um, not surprisingly, very few what they call agriculturalists, that's because there were no farms in Boston in 1855, nor factory operatives. Well, as I'm about to show you, there were industries in Boston in 1855. So I think by factory operatives, they meant um, workers in textile mills, and there were no textile mills in Boston in 1855. Um, here's the population graph. Boston, again, is in black. It's still the fourth largest city in the U.S., behind New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore. The architectural sidebar is about um, the Italianate style. The public building we illustrate is the State Street block. That's right in front of the Custom House, excuse me, and doesn't look like this today because the whole eastern half was cut off for the building of the Central Artery. Our Upper middle class house is a townhouse on Beacon Street um, in Back Bay, which was just about to be developed. And the middle class house is on Meridian Street in East Boston. On the map, we wanted to show where these various national and ethnic groups lived. Um, the data were collected by ward. So each one of these graphs represents the population of a ward, the size of the graphs shows the relative size of the populations of the various wards. Well, as you can see, the blue being U.S.-born whites were predominant in most of the wards. Here, the Irish were predominant in Ward 7, which is where Fort Hill was at the time. That's where International Place is today. And the yellow are African Americans. And this is Ward 6, which included the north slope of Beacon Hill. And as you probably know, there, the major um, uh, location of African Americans during almost all of the 1800s in Boston was on the north slope. The map, uh, then uh, we also show the location of churches. The Protestant churches are shown in black. Their denominations are indicated with a letter. The uh, Jewish synagogues are in white. It's really hard to see with this. But anyway, they're in here. And the Catholic churches are also shown in white. The map itself 
points up a very important feature of the atlas, and that is that we tried to make the shoreline of every map in the atlas accurate for the date of that plate. So this is not the present shoreline of Boston. This is the 1855 shoreline, which you can see here. This is the 1855 shoreline on a modern map of Boston. The difference, of course, being all of the filling and land making that was done since then. So we were always looking for maps that our cartographers could use to recreate these historical shorelines. And in this case, we were heavily dependent on this 1852 map of Boston by Henry McIntyre, which we use not only because the Boston Peninsula is quite accurate, but also because it shows Cambridge, Charlestown, East Boston, South Boston, and Roxbury, which we knew we wanted to use. Uh, the back bay section of our map came from this 1852 map of back bay. This is the, um, in the same section, a plate on the economy in 1855, the same 1852 map. So here, I don't know if you can see it given the focus, but um, there are a lot of peas in Boston. That was an important industry, was piano making. As you probably know, piano making was a, a major industry in Boston in the 19th century. But here, the piano makers are still located in the downtown area and South Cove, and we're just beginning to move into the South End, which really did become the locus of piano making a little later. Other important industries in Boston were upholstering uh, with ewes and leatherworking. In Cambridge, all the S's are for soap making, which was very important. In East Boston, the S's are for shipyards. Uh, this was the period of the clipper ships and Donald McKay's shipyard, for example, was, which was there, but there were many other important ones. In Roxbury, there were a, were a variety of industries, including these queues, black queues are for quarries, and that's where that Roxbury pudding stone was quarried. This map shows the central business district along Washington Street and Hanover Street. It also shows that banks were still heavily uh, located on State Street, and then some, uh, some dealers were, tended to be located on particular streets. The leather workers, uh, the leather dealers on Pearl Street and these places in the North End. The graphs show um, the important industries. The most important industry in Boston was actually clothing manufacturing. Soap, these are color-coded by uh, location. Soap was most important in Cambridge, etc. And then the industries, um, how much, uh, the number of people they employed. Our next section we called Metropolitan Boston. It's about the expansion of Boston from the uh, original peninsula through the annexation of Roxbury, uh, Dorchester, West Roxbury, uh, Brighton, and Charlestown. And it includes this plate on the beginning of the public transportation system. This map shows the extent of the horse car lines in 1888. Now, horse cars, as you know, were streetcars that ran on steel tracks but pulled by horses. Even with just horsepower, some of these were pretty extensive. One of these horse car lines went all the way to Lynn. But this map 
shows the huge expansion of the system once it began to be electrified in 1888. This side of the plate shows the beginning of the early subway system. The very first subway in Boston, in fact, the very first subway in the whole Western Hemisphere was in Boston. It opened in 1897 and ran from Park Street to the Public Garden and then was soon expanded. That was what we call a streetcar subway. That is, streetcars ran on surface lines and then into a tunnel in the downtown area. The next one of these to be developed was an elevated line, which ran on Washington Street in the South End, on Atlantic Avenue, around the waterfront, and then on Main Street in Charlestown to Sullivan Square. Through the downtown area, these trains, these were rapid transit trains, not streetcars, originally ran on the same through the same tunnel as the subways on the Tremont, I'm sorry, as the streetcars on the Tremont Street line. But that really didn't work too well, having the trains and the streetcars on the same uh, tunnel. So in 1908, they dug a separate tunnel for the rapid transit trains. Um, and that's still the tunnel that the Orange Line trains take through Boston today. The third of these lines to open was another streetcar subway that ran from Bowdoin Square to Maverick Square in East Boston through a tunnel that was dug especially for it under the harbor. This was at the time the second longest vehicle tunnel in North America. Um, here you can see a streetcar emerging from the tunnel in Maverick Square in East Boston. This was not changed to a rapid transit train line as it is today until 1924. And then the last of the lines to be developed was the forerunner of today's red line, which was done by digging a tunnel under Beacon Hill and then running the trains, these again were rapid transit trains, over the newly constructed bridge that later became the Longfellow Bridge to uh, and then in a tunnel under Mass Ave in Cambridge to Harvard Square in Cambridge, and then through another tunnel to Andrew in South Boston. Our next section we call Boston in the late 1800s and early 1900s. We actually tried to avoid the term century in the atlas. You know, it's really confusing to people. You say the 17th century, but you mean the 1600s. So as much as possible, we tried to stick to using the term hundreds, but it sometimes ended us up in awkwardnesses like this. I think it would have been a lot easier to say Boston in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, but using hundreds, we were stuck with this. Anyway, this section includes uh, plates on a number of different topics, the economy, uh, recreational um, and entertainment, um, cultural developments and social uh, developments, and then some politics at the end. Um, this is the plate on cultural institutions. Here is the Athenaeum right up here. Um, the point of this plate is to show that the cultural institutions in Boston generally moved along with the fashionable neighborhoods in Boston. The Athenaeum is the exception to the rule. It's the only place that has stayed in its original location. 
So all the rest of them, it, this shows that some of the early ones, the um, ones founded in the late 1700s are shown in purple. Then in the early 1800s, many moved to the vicinity of the common. Later in the 1800s, um, that's shown in blue. Later in the 1800s, some moved to the Back Bay area. And then finally, at the beginning of the 20th century, many moved to the Fenway. The Massachusetts Historical Society, for example, is in its seventh home here. Now, to trace these, each one of these institutions has a letter. And you have to, we considered having lines connecting all the institutions. So you could look at a line from, you know, let's say the Mass Historical, which began up here. Um, and then trace it. It ended up, us up with a map that was like a spider web. It was a real nightmare. So we gave up the lines, and instead, you have to look at it a little bit, but you can trace the movement of all of these institutions uh, by following their letters. The color photographs are of buildings that still exist, and the black and whites of buildings that are no longer there. This section also includes this plate on the mayoral election in 1910. As I said, we have a heavy emphasis in the atlas on economic developments. This is actually the only plate on a specifically political topic. Um, because we felt when we were trying to explain how and why uh, Boston developed, as I said, from the small town of the 1600s to the present city, what really drove that was economic developments. It really, not as much how Boston voted in various elections. But this election was really important. This is the one where Honey Fitz Fitzgerald, that is JFK's grandfather, defeated James J. Sturrow for the mayoralty. mayoralty. Um, and that really represented the shift from the uh, control of Boston politics from the Yankees to the Irish, who then controlled Boston politics for almost the entire rest of the 20th century. It was a very close election. Uh, Honey Fitz won by only 4,000 votes, so there was a recount. This is the recount in Faneuil Hall. The map shows that Sturl won heavily in Back Bay and the outlying sections of Boston, but Honey Fitz won the uh, wards that were heavily, um, had the largest immigrant populations. And then here you can see the um, vote by ward. A sidebar on Curley, the up and coming Irish mayor who uh, was in office on and off when he wasn't in jail during various <laughs> times in the 20th century. Our next section is called Decline. Boston had an extremely long depression, much longer than the National Depression, which, as you know, began in 1929 and ended, well, in the 19- 30s or maybe not till World War II, depending on how you look at it, but Boston's went on until about 1960. This section includes this plate on Boston's public housing, which began during this period. 
Uh, the author of this plate, Larry Vale, who's the big expert on public housing at MIT, says that this map is the only one of its kind. It's the only map he knows of that shows the location of the family housing projects. That's the way public housing began. These are the big projects like Columbia Point and Mission, Maine, Old Colony, as well as the elderly projects, which is what Boston public housing became in the 1950s, and then the location of present voucher housing, which is what the public housing is now. And you can see the shift on this graph. These graphs show the shifts of various groups of public housing from basically white. Um, the overall shift is shown with this black line. The overall shift in public housing in Boston has been from predominantly white to non-white. So these, this group of projects shifted sort of along the same trajectory as the public housing system as a whole. These projects were intended to be non-white from the beginning. These shifted very suddenly for various reasons, and some remained white for quite a long time. Um, or predominantly white. Um, these maps show the location of the almshouse in Boston, that is the public institution for the poor, which was basically always located on the fringes of the city. Now note that the shoreline in all these maps is correct for the date of the map. So in 1676, the almshouse was on the common. The shaded area represents the settled area of Boston at the time. In 1800, the almshouse was moved to the West End, which was, although, which was just beginning to be settled. It was definitely considered the boonies. Um, in 1826, the almshouse was moved to an unsettled part of South Boston, and in 1856, it was taken out of the city altogether and put on Deer Island. This is what I would say is an out of sight out-of-mind approach to dealing with the poor. Um, then we have a section on the recovery um, beginning in 1960, uh, which includes uh, this plate, which I wanted to show you, just to show you that we do cover this topic. Any of you who know my own work know that my area of expertise is all the filling that's been done to create the land that Boston's on. So we had hoped to combine that topic with other plates, but it just didn't work. So there are a couple of plates devoted just to it. This shows the um, filling or the land making that took place between 1880 and 2003. Um, it's color coded to show you the for which the land was made. Um, here, the biggest project you can see is what we now would call the uh, Seaport District in South Boston. But actually, the biggest land making in Boston is not Back Bay, the way everybody thinks, but the airport, which is shown on a separate plate here. So all these different colors represent different time periods at which the filling was done for the airport, which, as I'm sure you know, is almost completely on man-made land. They're just these two little original islands. This photo is of the airport in 1923. What you're looking at here is what's in light yellow right there. And then we have a, um, 
uh, plate on the, we have this map showing the development of the highway system. We do have a number of uh, plates about the infrastructure in Boston. Uh, I showed you the one on public transportation. We have this on highway. We also deal with the water and sewerage systems. As early as 1909, when the automobile was just being developed, it was recommended that Boston's highways be a series of radials coming out from the center connected by circumferentials. And that's exactly what happened. So this uh, map shows the date of some of the important radials and then the dates at which the various segments of 128, which is really the most important of the circumferentials, was built. And then finally we have a, a section on, well, we originally called it present Boston, but our editor pointed out that the atlas will probably be a reference book that people use for many years, and to talk about the present would be confusing. People would always say, well, what year do you mean by the present? So we changed the date here, and we also changed the date of, uh, we changed the title of, as you will see, these plates on the four components of the uh, economy. So this section has updating some of the infrastructure, four plates on the um, different uh, components of the present economy, and then something about environmental problems and a final plate, which I'm going to show you some. So as I said, we changed, we changed the title here. This is now called Boston's Economy, um, a center of higher education. On the map, we show when all these institutions of higher education were founded. One in the uh, 1600s, that's Harvard of course, very few before the Civil War, quite a lot between the beginning of the Civil War and the end of World War I, which is shown in red, uh, a few between the end of World War I and II in green, and then quite a few since the end of World War II shown in blue. The different symbols, the star, the diamond, the square, the circle, whatever, show the different types of institutions, whether they're major research universities or two-year colleges or whatever. Then on this side of the plate, we show the original location of some of these major universities. MIT, as you probably know, originally started in Back Bay in this building. BU, uh, sorry, BC, my apologies, BC, um, started in the South End in this building, which is still there. BU was, when it came to Boston, originally on a lot, a lot of different buildings on Beacon Hill, of which this was one. Suffolk was also on Beacon Hill, as it still is, but not in this building, which is on Mount Vernon Street. That was the original. And Northeastern, as you probably know, was in the Y. Then we have a plate about environmental problems in Boston. Now, this plate was completed in 2014. I think if it had been done closer to the date when we finished the rest of the atlas, we would have had even more emphasis on sea level rise, or the problem of it, which is what this shows. What this shows in the red and orange and yellow is the degree to which the sea level would rise uh, given various feet. 
And what's really interesting about it is that the areas that would be most flooded are basically um, areas congruent with areas of, of made land. That's why we showed the original shoreline of Boston here. And it's not surprising. When they made this land, they just filled uh, in above the level of the high tide then. They thought that was enough. Well, it may have been then, but it isn't now. And then this side of the plate, we talk about two other environmental problems that are related to the uh, large amount of made land in Boston. This is the problem of falling groundwater, rotting foundation piles. All masonry buildings in Boston built on uh, fill on made land in the 19th century, are, their foundations are supported by timber pilings that were driven into the fill. Well, wood is preserved almost indefinitely if it's kept always wet. But the problem has been that in the 20th century, the groundwater level began dropping, exposing the tops of these wood pilings to air. And when wet wood is exposed to air, it's subject to bacteria that causes rot. And that's exactly what happened. The tops of the pilings rotted, leaving the foundations that they were supposed to be supporting unsupported, and in some cases causing severe structural damage to the buildings over them. The fix is very expensive. It's called underpinning, and it means excavating by hand underneath the foundation, removing the rotted piles, replacing them with steel piles enclosed in concrete. Very expensive. So this is the area that's most subject to the problems of falling groundwater. Um, rotting foundation piles, again, very congruent with areas of made land. Um, this is a problem, I must say, that's a little better under control now. We have something called the Groundwater Trust that monitors groundwater levels and then actually pumps water back in if it's really falling. This shows the possible damage to Boston in case of an earthquake. You may think Boston's not in an earthquake zone, but it is. This woodcut shows the damage to Boston in the earthquake of 1755. So the possible damages are twofold. One, the purple and blue show unreinforced masonry buildings, but the green shows areas that might liquefy. That all this made land, if it's shaken very badly, can turn to liquid. It's called liquefaction, and it's a major hazard in case of earthquakes. And these, this is the area that was predicted that might, would be subject to liquefaction in case of an earthquake. So again, very consistent with areas of man-made land. And then finally, we have a plate on Boston in 2010. This was the last census we had available to us before the publication of the atlas. Uh, again, our map shows the location of uh, uh, ethnic and national groups. I think this is the best way of showing them, but we didn't have these data for the earlier periods. So the white, I'm, I'm sorry, the blue are whites, yellow are African Americans, Green are Hispanics, and the purple are Asians. Here's the population graph. So by this time, Boston is 22nd largest city in the US. This is the graph of Boston's population over time. Uh, beginning in 1790, it reached its peak in 1950, then fell, and is now growing again. 
This graph shows a really important fact about present-day Boston, which is the disparity between the rich and the poor. The dotted line is the average household income for U.S. households as a whole. The blue line are Boston households. So you can see that there are more Boston, lower income Boston households than the national average and more higher income which explains this disparity between the rich and the poor, which is one of the salient facts about Boston today and a major problem. And then these two photos are of two places that were developing in 2010, the Fort Point Channel area and the theater district. So I hope that has given you some idea of what's in the atlas. <laughs>